I give you my greetings in the name of Jesus Christ this morning and invite you to open the Bible to your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the same section of verses we read last week. If you were here last week, you will uh, know that or know that we were going to spend two weeks in this. If you were not here, that's fine. We'll do our best to catch you up and we'll do our best to finish out the text this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read the first 12 verses. We'll do a little bit of review to make sure that we're on the same page this morning as we uh, jump in, and then we will, uh, like I said, seek to try to finish off the text here. Follow along as I read from God's Word this morning. Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be too quickly Sorry, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, as we always do when we read your word, we want to come with uh, the mindset and the positioning that your word is inspired, it comes from you, is applicable, it's useful for us, it teaches us, it corrects us, it helps us to see where we see things wrong, it leads us to right understanding, it renews our minds so that we can truly be living sacrifices for you. That means that must be our prayer this morning. We come with humility to you, to your Holy Spirit, and ask you to feed us from your word this morning. Teach us. Shape us, mold us, have your way with us so that we might be right with you. Thank you for these words that Paul wrote. Thank you for the introduction or the the beginnings that we made last week and help me now today to uh, close out and to teach accurately what your word has to say. As always, Father, I pray that those things that uh, are not from you, that you would just keep them from coming out of my mouth. And I pray that you would, as you always do, give instruction through your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, in, even not in words that come out of my mouth, but just in, in communicating directly with us. For you are to be highly exalted, lifted high in praise. You are holy, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I gave you last week what was the overarching thrust of the text, and this week is the exact same thing. The title is the same, The Coming of Our Lord. 
because the subject is the same, and it's really coming from that very first verse there, when Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. You remember in the first letter, there was some concern about this. What is this going to look like uh, when Jesus returns and we are gathered together to be with him, those of us who call ourselves by Jesus' name? What is that going to look like? Paul gave some, uh, some instruction about that in his first letter, and now he's returning to that subject with the same thing. However, in this case, uh, in the first letter, his uh, their question, I think, seemed to be more about what will happen to those people who have already died. In other words, do we have to be alive when Jesus comes back for us to be gathered with him? And Paul dispels that and says, no, that's not how it's going to work. He again returns to that. This time, however, uh, again, it's the same, the same focus or emphasis as we talked about last week. The same goal in mind as we talked about last week. Paul says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind. I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be shook up. I don't want you to be stirred. I want you to be, again, this was kind of the theme of both letters that I've been giving the overarching picture. I want you to be established in the gospel. I want you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and be rooted in that. When he would write his letter to the Colossians, he would use the imagery of a tree, and he would say, I want you to have your roots go down deep and for you to grow up and produce fruit in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't moved by human traditions or philosophy or those kinds of things, but you are established firm in the gospel. It's the same thrust. He says, I, don't, it, I'm, I want you to know whether there's a spirit that somehow uh, is coming and claiming some kind of spiritual power or some kind of spoken word under the authority of, of God himself or some kind of letter that it might even come to you. I want you to know that the, uh, something, these things about the day of the Lord and to know that it has not come yet. And last week, if you remember, I used questions to guide us through. Questions that I was asking myself, questions that you might be asking yourself. We began with, well, how do we know that it hasn't come yet? How do we know we didn't miss that, right? And he said, well, we know that because uh, I, I taught you when I was there that before Christ can come, there will be a great rebellion or a great apostasy, a great falling away. And when that happens, there will be a revelation and uncovering of what he called the lawless one. Which led into my second question. What is meant by this lawless one? What, what, what was that all about? And we dug into who this lawless one is going to be. How he's going to oppose. He, he's going to come as if he were coming in the name of God. As if he were Christ. But he's going to actually be coming by the activity of Satan. Uh, Paul used the phrase uh, in one of his other writings that he, Satan comes as an angel of light. Disguised as an angel of light. And this will be an outworking of that. And we ended last week with wrestling with how can uh, so many people be led astray? So many people who, who presumably are calling themselves Christians, who are presumably in the church. How can so many of them be led astray? And we wrestled with the fact that he's coming with signs and wonders and power. And in fact, the language is such that Paul says God is even sending him to deceive many which seems weird for us to say, and I, I try to help us see that in both phrases there, those who refuse to love the truth and those who had pleasure in unrighteousness gives the indication that there was a choice that was being made. Those people who were exposed to the truth and those people who knew what the difference was between righteousness and unrighteousness and chose to walk away, and God says, I'm handing you over. Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 1. I'm handing you over to, uh, to this delusion that you have chosen to believe or to walk into and become even more deluded. So great will their delusion be that there's this great falling away, which leads to the revelation of the lawless one, and, and so on and so on. Uh, just one 
one return back since I did some review to last week to what I think is probably the most important part of last week is the admonition or the encouragement or the exhortation that our role in this is to, to be the opposite of those two phrases I just read, is to not refuse to love the truth, but to love the truth, is to not take pleasure in unrighteousness, but to take pleasure to speak well, to think good of righteous behavior. Those are the things that will uh, defend us against the delusion, who will defend us against the great deception. Well, Today, I will do, uh, try to do the same thing, just continue a series of questions as, as we work through the text, as we follow up on these kind of things, and I'll just begin with the first question here. What is keeping the revealing of this man of lawlessness from taking place? I mentioned this last week, but certainly it's true that there's lawless activity happening all over the place, right? There's lawlessness taking place all over the world, and we would often even say, uh, unreservedly say that this is happening with increasing measure. It's not like it's getting better, right? It's getting worse. It's probably the biggest logical argument you and I have against the fallacy of humanism, which believes that there's somehow good inside of us and that if you just leave us alone without these exterior bad influences, we will, just, we will become better and better and somehow form some kind of utopic society. Well, look at how the world has gone. Look at the pattern of what people have done. Particularly look at the pattern of what people have done when they're in power, in charge. And you'll see whether there's good inside of man or not. Right? You'll see the result. There's lawlessness everywhere. So this is a pertinent question. Why has, what, what's keeping this from happening? And the answer is found in verses 6 and 7. I'll read both of them, or at least portions of both of them for you. In verse 6, Paul says, You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So he picks up the theme of the revelation of the lawless one, and he says something is restraining. Something is holding him down. That's the Greek word kateko, to hold down or to, to, to hold fast or to, to, to clamp down. Something is restraining this lawless one from being revealed in his time, so that he's revealed in his time. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. One is this, again, starts presenting the difficulty that I, that I mentioned last week. Because when Paul uses the phrase, you know what is restraining him, but doesn't say it, it leaves us wanting some things, Right? But you also should recognize before we go any further down that road, there's, there's a really key phrase at the very end of that verse, in his time. There's a word that's used there, which is kairos, which is a word that's used lots of times in the New Testament. Lots of times, well, the Greek word isn't used lots of times in the whole Bible, but the idea of it is used lots of times in the Bible. Because when you see it used, it's used in the context of speaking of God's sovereignty in, uh, over the events of human history. There's a time and a season. For example, Paul would write to the Galatians that when the time had come, when the right time came, God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin, to be born of Mary, to be born under the law so that he might redeem those of us who were born of the law. So when the time had come, over and over again when Jesus walked on the earth, you read the Gospel of John, you'll see this all the time. He says things like, my time has not yet come, right? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time is until the time came that his time had come, Right? And he gave up his life, was crucified on the cross to pay for our sins, and was brought back out from that grave and ascended. So time, kairos is an occasion or a set or proper time or season. That's what that word means. 
So hang on to that word. Last week I, I exhorted us to hang on to the word uh, rebellion or apostasy because it, ha- it helps us understand what Paul is trying to say here. And now I'm going to say hang on to this word as we, begin to, as we keep working through the, the text and understanding what it means. That there's something about time and God's control of time that we have to pay attention to. But... As Paul talks about, and he gives, gives a voice to the fact that, well, lawlessness is already happening. It's all around us. He finishes that sentence out in verse 7. He says, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Again, coming back to restraint. So if the question is, what's keeping the man of lawlessness from being revealed? The answer is, well, something is restraining him. Or perhaps you might say, someone is restraining him. I don't know if you picked up on this. I don't particularly like that's like this because it causes more questions in my mind than answers. But if you look at verse 6, Paul says, you know what is restraining. And in verse 7, you, he says, he who now restrains. So he does two things that uh, don't seem to agree with him. On one hand, he calls this restraint a what. And on the other hand, he calls this restraint a who. Now, probably without a doubt, I would guess, for almost any of us, when we read this text, there's a burning question that I haven't asked yet, that I'm about to, that I think is probably what we really all want to, like, dig into. Because that naturally makes us ask this question. I think. It does me. What or who is the restrainer? What is this? Because if we're putting things in place then we have to understand Paul is saying something is restraining the lawless one from being revealed. And he will not be revealed until there's a great apostasy. But when that chain of events starts to happen, great falling away, revelation of the lawless one, then Jesus Christ will return. So what is it or who is it that's restraining this revelation from happening? And here I must again just appeal to you or tell you This is one of these instances I believe that there's things not spoken of in the text that leave us with questions. In other words, I'm trying to tell you, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that question for you. When Paul says, and I didn't read this verse to you this morning, but I mean, I read it when I read the whole text, but I didn't return to it. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And the very next words out of his mouth, and you know what is restraining. In other words, he told them when he was there. But he doesn't write it down here, which I'm sorry to tell you means I can't really tell you definitively, based on the teaching of this text, what it is. That might be greatly disappointing to you. I don't know. Maybe you don't care. I will go through a number of things in my studying and my wrestling with that I have uncovered that people say it is, that people believe it is that have been taught and believed and are being taught and believed. And I guess you can fit some things. And I'll try to give you some reasons why I think that could be accurate or why I don't think that could be accurate. Maybe what's going to be most frustrating of all is I'm not even sure. Maybe you'll be able to tell from what I, how I say it, but I'm not even sure I know for sure what I think it is. So that might leave you thinking I wish that you didn't do this to me. I don't know. Let's just jump in. You may be surprised that for the first several centuries of the early church, 
they would have taught and believed, to the best of my understanding anyway, that Rome was the restrainer, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us. However, if you think from an early church perspective and you are an early believer in Jesus Christ, you would look at the Jews as being the ones who oppressed and killed Jesus, the Messiah. And you would look at them further as being the ones who are killing and oppressing and bothering you, probably more than about anybody else. And you would say what is keeping the Jews from having their way and doing whatever they'd like to with us Christians is probably Rome. Ergo, therefore, Rome is the restrainer that's standing in the way from this lawless one. It also gives us a clue that their understanding, which I do think is an understanding we should carry into today, is that this lawless one is one who is going to come in the name of God, but not be speaking for God, which to them puts it squarely coming from a Jewish perspective, because those are God's people. Those are the ones who are claiming to be for God. And when one rises up and says, I am God, and I'm God's representative, perhaps even claiming to be the Messiah, because that's the language that's here, right? Setting himself up to be God, that that person is almost assuredly going to come from the Jews. That's probably their perspective. That's their perspective. That's why this was their understanding. You and I would probably look back at history and say, no way was it the Romans, Romans because of all the atrocities they themselves committed against Christians down the ages. And, of course, when the Roman Empire ceased to exist, we didn't see this unfold. So we have some advantage of time, right? Because it didn't happen. So that would not be a correct understanding. Maybe it ought to serve us as we go down through the list to help us understand that what we think makes perfect sense to us may not be correct. That humility is required on our part. Because what seems to be very clear sometimes when time is allowed to roll by, some other people look back and say, I don't know how you thought that, because that's clearly not the case. Let me just go through my list. I didn't order these in any kind of way necessarily other than how they came into my head and I started jotting my notes down. I mean, that's really how, if you look at my notebook, that's the order I wrote them in. I just put them in this order. So it makes it even harder to guess whether I think it's the right one or not the right one. The Holy Spirit is often posed as this restrainer, which makes a lot of sense, I think. The the presence of God in the world restraining the activity of evil and restraining the, the, the ultimate activity of this lawless one who's going to raise himself up to be God. When the Holy Spirit is there, then evil is kept in check. Makes a lot of sense. What, where it may break down is at some point, according to this text, what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit will be removed. Because otherwise, you can't have the, you can't have the lawless one being revealed. And Paul says pretty clearly it's tied, I think, to some kind of great apostasy, some kind of great falling away. So you could maybe make some cases, and I think you could probably go into the Old Testament and dig some imagery out of the Old Testament and dig some, some ways that God interacts and says, I'm going to remove my presence from the people of Israel and correlate that with the removal of the Holy Spirit at some point. I think you could make some cases like that. So maybe that's where you want to land up. You want to say the Holy Spirit is the restraining, is the restrainer. Paul referred to him as a what and as a who. You can, deal, you can kind of work through that and say, this is what Paul has in mind. That at some point, God will pull the Holy Spirit back. And when that happens, there's great falling away. The lawless one is being, is being revealed. And then comes Jesus. 
I'll just move on and leave you hanging there. Many people say it's the true church of Jesus Christ that Paul is referring to. It's those authentic believers in Jesus who, is, who are restraining the activity of evil and who are re- holding back the evil one. And at some point, they're removed and then this will happen. In fact, for many of us who believe in something called the rapture, this makes a lot of sense to us because, and I've heard people tell me this, I've heard people teach this, I read this teaching uh, this week, is that, that when, the, when the church is raptured out, think of what will happen. Think of the, the unabated activity of evil that will be allowed to run forth when the church is, 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 is taken out of, of this world. My only issue with this is, I think it puts us in a awkward, uncomfortable, maybe even immovable, circular place of reasoning. Because in the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about this rapture, or this being caught up together, and he says that that will happen when Jesus returns. And he uses the same language, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, that he's using here. So here he's saying the coming of the Lord cannot happen until there's a falling away and a revealing of the lawless one who is being restrained right now. And if the restraint is the church, then you're left with a place that says the church has to be taken out so that there's a falling away, a revealing of the lawless one, and then a coming of Jesus. But Paul has already told us that when the coming of Jesus, that's when the church is taken out. So you have to have the church taken out and then later raptured again, which doesn't really work. So I think it does leave us some desiring as to how that will actually work out. Again, I read how people take care of those things, and you can talk, maybe there's technicalities, or maybe there's, I'm giving you lots of options. You, again, you, I may not, I may be coming, you may be coming less and less of a fan of me as I move through this and don't give you what the right answer is. Or what, and again, I already told you, I'm not even, I don't think I know, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I can stand in front of you this morning and definitively tell you this is what it is. Mostly because it doesn't say it in the text. And my commitment is to only teach you with de- definitive by definitively what the text says. I think a really good option is what I would call religion. In this camp, I would put people who call themselves Christians but are, do not actually know Jesus Christ. Are not real Christians, if you want to put it that way. Are not authentic believers. You might even expand this out beyond to other religions. And let me give you some reasons why I think this can make some sense. I think without a doubt, when religion is involved in the world, when there's the presence of religion, specifically Christianity, in the world, almost always there is a very high presence of moral, high moral behavior, moral activity. It's just, it's just part of what it is. Even when people are not authentic uh, believers in Jesus or don't know Jesus, many of them continue to still carry standards of morality that are right and wrong. And in many cases, when you look at world history, in many cases, there is a great interweaving between the religion of the people and the leadership or the government or the state of that uh, political country. In fact, in many cases through history, they're one and the same, actually. One of the premises of this country built on is built on the fact that there should be a separation of that. However, if you go back and study American history, and probably how many of us feel even today, unmistakably, there is a foundation of Christian belief underneath how this country was formed, and the rules that came, and the laws that were established, and the way the government itself was set up. So even when there was a 
an attempt or even when there was a statement that the, that the government should not coerce religion, there was clearly, you can't separate, you can't say this didn't, didn't happen. That, that the government was influenced greatly by the, the faith of the people who were establishing these things. Now, one other comment I want to make about this thing is, I don't know if you've recently read Revelation chapter 17 or Revelation chapter 18, and I'm hoping that after today you will go back and read them because I won't take time to read them to you this morning. But if you read Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, in, that, in those chapters, John is seeing the revelation of what uh, God is calling, what the text is calling, in chapter 17, the great prostitute, and in chapter 18, Babylon. And it is my premise that those are the same things because of the way the language is. The very last verse of 17 talks about this great prostitute as the city, and the very next verse talks about Babylon as that same city. And then if you think of things like this, in the Old Testament when the people of God fell away from him, what did God call them? You've been sitting there and just listening to me talk about a whole bunch of ideas. So let's, are you awake? What did God call them? What did God call the people of Israel when they were unfaithful to him? That gives you a pretty good clue. He called them adulterers. He called them harlots. He called them prostitutes, if you want to. And that's the exact same language that's being used in Revelation 17. And then being told that this is Babylon, the great city, which, with, with which the kings of the earth committed adultery with. And there's some clues there. Again, go back and read this. I have, for a long time, for most of my years, I have understood that as some kind of other thing. It's the world system or something. When I read Revelation 17 and 18 now, I read the church that is not the true church. The church that has sold itself to have power with the governments of the world, to have power with the economic systems of the world, to have power with the traitors of the world. And if you go back and read Revelation 17 and 18, I think your eyes will be opened as to some real true realities of how what has been known as the church throughout the ages has often committed great atrocities. In fact, many times even against what we would call the true saints and believers. For most of us in this room today, brothers and sisters, who call ourselves from Anabaptist roots, then we are party to one of those great places where the church actually hunted down and killed those who were believers. What we would say, what we would call the true church. When you read Revelation 18, I'm making a longer point than I probably should with this, but when you read Revelation 18, then you can see that when Babylon falls, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the ships, uh, seafarers, the traders of the earth, and even some language of, you know, never again will the bride and bridegroom be heard in Babylon. What do you think that means? Where do people get married? In the church, right? Never again will music be played there. And somehow, let me bring this back to this point. Somehow, if it were to be conceivable that what has been church or religion throughout the ages that has worked closely in tied with governments throughout the ages to hold the behavior of people in check throughout the ages. Somehow if that were uncoupled and there were a great falling away against religion itself, that we have no more need for religion at all. 
Like, we don't want any of them because they're all bad. Somehow, if that were to happen, I think the scenario that Paul is describing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 would take place. A great falling away leading to the revelation of the lawless one. I think if you look around, we are rapidly approaching those things. I think without being too geocentric, you know, I live in the U.S., so I see things from here, not across the world. Without trying not to be too geocentric, I think it's happening here in this country. Any religious activity ends up being bad because it makes you a fanatic. It makes you some kind of zealot, and we should get rid of all of it. I think there's undertones of that happening in our, in our world. Now, just to, just to step aside, I want us to, to hear, this is not part of the text, so just, just to step aside, I want us to hear, because I think it's important for us to have good, proper worldviews. We need to understand there is not a single worldview that exists that does not tie to some religious belief. It all comes back to your theology. Even if people claim that there's no like that, that, that there's no, that they're against, even though that's what you're going to hear. Like we're against any kind of religion. We want to get rid of all of it because it always leads to bad things. That still is making, that's still a religious position on their part. You're always going to tie it back to what their theology is about who God is. Whether he exists or not, what to do with him. So I just want to say that to protect us from the lie that's going to be put upon us, that you can somehow separate those things and, and that you can really do something without any religion. I mean, every part of your worldview is ultimately tied back to what you believe about God. If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to. I just went through an incredible course with my two high schoolers, my two juniors in high school called Thinking Like a Christian. I would highly recommend, again, I'm totally stepping aside from it. I would highly recommend it. In fact, um, I think uh, Marks and Laura and I were talking about whether it'd be good for our young, our youth to go through it someday. So Jerry or Nate, come talk to me. And I, I, it, it's incredibly good. I have thoroughly loved teaching it to my two high schoolers because it's really important and it's really good. Anyway, I'll go step aside from that. Again, you can do with what you want with this, uh, whether it's religion or not. I, I think there's places that makes a really strong case. There's probably some things you could point out and say that doesn't really fit together. I'll keep going through. I think the simplest reading of this text would lead us to believe that God is the restrainer. Go back to the text in verse 6 where it talks about the fact that uh, what the law, what's restraining the lawless one that, so that he will be revealed in his time. And I told you before that when you see this word time, kairos, it almost always, not always, but almost always is a reference to God's sovereignty and how he moves things along in our human world of events, time of events. So the simplest, most plain reading would simply be that God is restraining this revelation of the lawless one, at which time, he, when he decides it's time for, for the program to move on, it's gonna, it's, it's, he's going to step back and it's going to move on. Simple as that. We don't need to do any finagling. We don't need to do any, like, like, trying to make this fit. This And just simply say, God is sovereign, and he's done it over and over again through these pages. He's done it over and over again through the events after these pages leading up to today, and you know he's still going to be doing it when the time comes to an end for us, right? That he is dictating the events when they happen, when they don't happen. So why not this one? Maybe just a, a, a version of that, my very final one is, you could say Paul is referring to an angel. This is really just an, uh, a, a, a furthering of the one I just gave of God because it's ultimately God that's responsible. But when we read apocalyptic literature uh, in Daniel and in Revelation, you will over and over again see that uh, there are angels that we don't see right now that are at work 
and they are and, and they're often used in this kind of language. They're, they're holding things at bay or they're releasing things that take place. Read the book of Revelation. They're going to show up every single time. And God calls to this angel and he releases from the four corners of the, of the world. I mean, the, all these things, language that's very much like this, a restraining until God says, now the time has come. And that angel steps out of the way and here comes the lawless one. Uh, so uh, again, without a lot of like going through all the, the jumping and making things fit, it's at God's timetable, and there's an angel somewhere that God has tasked with this very task that someday he's going to ask to step aside. And, and, the, and the, I called it the program earlier, but, and, and the, the, the event comes to place. Now, all of these things, I hope I haven't lost you. I hope I haven't confused you. I hope I haven't upset you too much. I hope I have, don't leave you with some kind of quandary or internal dilemma. For sure... I might have missed something. You can come talk to me afterwards. Maybe it's some obvious thing that helps us to see what the right answer is or something I missed totally, totally, totally fair of you to think that or to be in that position. Uh, I don't claim to have perfect understanding. However, all of that aside, the last place we're going to get to is the place we have to get to. Because I think the final question we have to ask ourselves is, how is all this going to end up? This is what really matters. This is what really matters. How is this all going to end up? We can go round and round about what's restraining the lawless one, about who the lawless one is going to be, about what's going to start this falling away, this rebellion, about whether we see it happening now or not, about how, what, how far along. We could go on and on about all those things. But in the end, if Paul's intention is for them to not be too quickly alarmed or shaken up in mind or anything like that, and by extension for us to have that same stability and, and security in Jesus Christ, then we have to end with this place right here. How is this all going to end up? And I don't know if you think about things like this. I think I've made a comment like this before, but I am so many times so completely astounded at all the words of Scripture and how many times when God's power is put on display, the scripture writer goes completely the opposite direction of instead of piling on words and, and putting superlative on superlative and making it obvious to us how great this is, he goes the exact opposite direction and in one little, subtle, simple sentence, here's what he says. When the lawless one is revealed, he is the one whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In other words, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's all over. When Jesus shows up on the scene, it's all over. By the breath of his mouth, again, apocalyptic literature, the sword coming out of, out of the mouth of Jesus, the, the Son of Man, and he will bring him to nothing. Correlating back to that little phrase he's stuck in there when he's the man of lawlessness, he's the son of destruction. Well, guess what the word nothing is? It is complete, utter destruction. It's like destruction times 10. It's, it, it's, he's super destroyed. He is the son of destruction. He's bringing destruction. That's what the lawless one is doing. But he will be utterly consumed, utterly destroyed, simply by the appearance of Jesus coming. This, brothers and sisters, this is what our eye must be fixed on. Not trying to figure out all the details. Not worrying that I can't figure it out. Not worrying that I don't know something. Not worrying that, that maybe if I, if, I, if I just have it all figured out, I'll be able to, to, to totally see when it's happening right in front of me so I'm ready for it. No, 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 no. Shove all that aside. This is where our eyes are fixed. This is where our heart is dwelling on. This is the truth that we drive our stake. This is the truth that we love. 
that when Jesus shows up, it's done. It's done. No matter all the wonderful, powerful signs, no matter all the miracles he's putting out, despite all the posing, all the scheming, all the power that's coming with the lawless one, in one moment, gone. In one moment, gone. This is why Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where you dig yourself down into, friend. This is what matters. When you walk away from today, it does not matter whether you figured out who's restraining the lawless one or whether you figure out who the lawless one is going to be, whether you have insight that no one else has, whether you're listening to all the right podcasts that are giving you all the right information so that you're the most prepared. It matters what I ended with last week, whether you love the truth and do not take pleasure in unrighteousness and whether you are utterly convinced that when Jesus shows up, it's all over with. And that matters because then when I'm, that, so my, only, my only goal, my only need is to be found in Jesus, is to be hidden in Jesus, is to be looking to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and scorned at shame and is ascending and sitting at the right hand of God. He's coming back, and when he does, it's all done. It's all done. What a day that will be. God, thank you so much for the definitiveness of the text that is there. For we, in our humanity, in our pride, in our arrogance, we get caught up with the things that we don't know of Scripture. When you are inviting us to always, always, always return back to the things that we do know from Scripture. This is one. Lord Jesus, you came when the time was right. When your father said, now is the time, you came. Why was that the right time? We don't know. But when the time was right, you came. And when the time was right, after you walked on earth, you hung on that cross. You shed your blood. They didn't take life from you. You gave up your life. You died. You, the author of life, were killed. But then you came out of that grave. You were resurrected. And you broke the power of sin and death. And you were seen by many. But then you ascended into heaven. You sent your Holy Spirit. And you said, I'm coming again someday. And all those who will believe on my name will be found in me, and their lives, who are even now hidden in you, Jesus, will be revealed when you come back. Those are the things we know. And when you come back, no matter how difficult, no matter how horrible, no matter how deceiving, no matter how great the power has been and evidently seems to be from those who are against you in that moment by the breath of your mouth and at the appearance of your coming, you will bring that all to nothing, Jesus, and you will be known by every single soul and by every uh, creature that God has created, by the world itself, by all the angels. You will be known without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that everything has been put under your feet, including death itself. It is to that day we look for. It is for that day we long for. It is that that we have our sight set upon God. And we long for it. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the captain of our salvation. That you are Lord of our life. Oh, may it be so. Oh, may we find in us 
the love for this truth that sets us free, that saves us, and the desire, the pleasure of being right before you because we are longing. The proof is there. We are longing to be with you, to honor you, to do these right things for you, Jesus, because you're worth it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy is he. Thank you, Father. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.